There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to Changing Politics, a podcast where we give you small, achievable steps to improve the world. I'm Grongy Maguire, and if I were a Spice Girl, I'd be supporting Theresa May's destructive domestic policies does not inherently make you a feminist. Spice. And I'm Marina Comte, the best thing to come from Europe to Britain since those water cannons Boris Johnson bought off the Germans. Please then tell me for scrap at a loss of 300k. But anyway, tell me, Gronya, how have you made the world a better place this week? Well, I'm going to stop gay conversion therapy by not laughing at bad jokes. Well, it sounds obvious when you say it like that. As usual, I'll explain more in the second half of the show. And now with the week's news. Okay, so let's start with an update on Brexit. And (laughs) I know those are probably the most upsetting words you can hear on a podcast. Ahead of, hey, it's just me and my mates bantering for two hours or discussing his favourite episode of Mrs Brown's Boys, it's David Davis. <laughs> oh, I'd, I'd watch a director's commentary. In fairness, I think I would kind of enjoy that. <laughs> <laughs> so last week, and I know this probably feels like a million years ago, but still, Theresa May revealed the 585-page draft withdrawal bill. 585 pages. Marie, who wrote this? J.K. Rowling. Anyway, <laughs> two of her Tory cabinet ministers immediately afterwards withdrew from government, Dominic Raab and Esther McVeigh. Now, how on earth will the government cope now without the Brexit minister, who didn't realise how important the Dove-Calais trade route was, and the DWP minister, who implemented the disaster that is universal credit? That is a woman who is more unpopular with the disabled community than cobblestones in the rain. I mean, obviously, the deal is bad. But then what do you expect? The UK is in a terrible position that even the most seasoned intermediaries would struggle with. And our chief negotiator can't even negotiate her limbs to move in time to Dancing Queen. OK, so actually, I I can't believe I'm going to do this. <laughs> but um, imagine coming back to the Brexit deal. And obviously, I think, you know, I'm, I'm guessing you're kind of coming at it from a point of saying, you know, all Brexit would be bad anyway. But I do think that I have been really frustrated by especially sort of like Brexit is going, you know, obviously, yeah, this deal is bad. 
we need to have a much better deal. And actually, to an extent, Labour is doing that as well, actually. Mm-hmm. And there's a thing that, what are the deal? What are the deal? So clearly, I generally think, you know, there might be someone else might have managed to get maybe a very slightly better deal. But given the UK's red lines and negotiations, like, there is nothing else. Like, Chequers mm-hmm. is basically the one deal the UK was like, always going to get. And I think that, again, even the most skilled negotiator, if they started from the same point would have got to the same thing. And so I think that there's like this anger, which at the moment is directed at kind of like Theresa May in the EU, really needs to be directed at the people who led the Leave campaign because they made everyone believe, including themselves, <laughs> that, you know, there could be some kind of like, you know, fantastical Brexit deal, which was never the case. That was never the case. And clearly no one at the time had actually done that amount of research, which I just find completely baffling. But truly, Theresa May and the government are complicit in creating this environment that was like, oh, don't worry, it'll be sorted. Don't worry about the fine detail. Like, Theresa May was so quiet. During the Brexit campaign, she kept her head down. She was very quietly remained. She, I think kind she of gave didn't. one speech. She gave one speech and then she got on with it. So... What's infuriating to me, right, is people are saying this is the best deal that we could have got and everybody's feeling a little bit sorry for me. But if you trigger Article 50 in March 2017 without a plan, then waste two months on a snap election, then have no cabinet consensus until July 2018 and then don't even put that plan to a vote until three months before we're supposed to leave, then that's the plan you're going to get. It's like waiting until 30 minutes before people come round to cook a Christmas dinner, then just shove a turkey in a microwave and then expect everybody to call you Delia Smith. So but that's the thing. I'm not disagreeing. But what I'm saying is that, you know, I think I do agree that actually Article 50 should have been triggered later and everything. But I do not. When you look at basically what is acceptable to the Conservative Party, who, you know, are the party in power at the moment and, you know, what their red lines are and what the red lines are, you know, are also Labour levers, I guess, and kind of other levers. I don't think there's, yeah, again, like, there might be, a you know, there could have been a slightly better Brexit deal. But at the end of the day, it was always going to be this because of the nature, you know, of the four freedoms, because of the nature of the EU and of trade and everything Like you know, it was always going to be a crappy deal. Mm-hmm. And if you're mad about that, then you can go talk to the people who ran the Leave campaign. It's almost, they're the ones I actually feel the most sorry for because they've had two years of build-up and anticipation and promises that they would take control back while still maintaining unfettered access to Europe. And after that, there's this. I think for Brexiteers, this must be like what the phantom menace was to everybody else. Just a huge, huge disappointment. And Jacob Rees-Mogg dressed up as Jar Jar Binks. Can I just say that actually, like genuinely could not really put in words how much I've enjoyed the 48 Letters disaster. <laughs> but it has been an absolute delight to watch. The fact that, you know, they brief stuff like, we don't just have the 48 letters, we've got about a dozen on top of that. <laughs> and actually, guess what? They do not. But then also, literally so many favourite bits on that. I think like Steve Baker is going, now, guess some people don't do what they said they were going to do. And it's like, oh man, you sound exactly like the SWAT in a group thing <laughs> at school who's like, well, actually, no. None of them did the work. So, you know, our thing is really bad now. Because as you said, they have been building up on this for so long. And in fairness, I think, you know, Number 10 has to an extent been in their pocket for a long time, over the VRG's pocket, because they were really scared. And never said, well, there you go, you know, time to show you what we're capable of. There you go, send in. <laughs> send in my lecture. And yeah, and then it's like, oh, 
Okay, actually, nothing has really happened. You can't even get in. Also, not forgetting the fact that actually the forty-eight letters is just the beginning of something. It's not even the end. After that, there's a vote of no confidence, and then they need. I can't remember the exact number, but I want to say one hundred and fifty-one something MPs <laughs> to vote against Theresa May. And it's like, dudes, you could not even get forty-eight. MPs to send in their letters, how do you expect to get a majority of the Parliamentary Conservative Party to do this? And also, if that happens, then, you know, she will be safe for a year, which, again, I also love, because it really feels like actually RuPaul's Drag Race, of if you mm. win a contest, you can get eliminated the week after. If, I don't know, I feel like if they'd been smart nearly, I think that Theresa May acolytes should have sent in their letters, so then there would have been a challenge, which she would have won, and then she'd be like, motherfuckers, <laughs> you got played. I really hope Jake Bree Smog, you, you know those thermometers they have for fundraisers, you know, to see, <laughs> I really wish he'd install one of those, like one of the rooms in his house, and just every every few hours has gone in unchecked. Nope. Still, just still a gun tank. Enough. There needs to be some gun <laughs> tank involved. Unclear where or who is in it, but yeah. What really gets to me as an outsider is just how deluded the Brexiteers have. You know, that the EU are waiting on our decision with bated breath. The UK is basically a 45-year-old balding man going through a midlife crisis who thinks at any moment our ex will be so grateful to have us back. They've moved on, guys. They've got bigger issues to deal with. They don't care if you turn up with a leather jacket and a motorcycle. That ship has sailed. The EU is made up of 27 independent countries, all of which have their own massive problems and issues to deal with. The rise of the far right, the migration crisis, the demise of the US as a reliable ally, the threat from Russia. The UK is very much on the bottom of their list of priorities right now. Because I've got two things to say on this. The serious one is that was, I actually completely agree. And I think it was actually our EU sources who said, because, you know, obviously the RG and Labour, etc. keep going like, we'll go to Brussels and we'll get our own deal. And the EU keeps being like, no, 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 you won't. You won't. There's a deal now. You take it. You don't take it. Like, we are not doing this again. And then the, <laughs> the, the slightly less serious thing, which I'm obsessed with. So my friend wrote to his MP. Um, about Brexit um, and about his worries about Brexit and everything. So, like, Cheryl Gillen is the is the name of the MP. And she replied saying, well, I've travelled around a lot and the UK is the best country by far. <laughs> so then it'll be fine, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I love that, like, this is a member of parliament whose justification for Brexit, you know, is going to be fine, is I've travelled around a lot and the UK is the best country by far. And, I, yeah, I, I can't even make sense that I want to make jokes about it, but I can't because there's at least, like... At the same time, so much and so little I have to say about this. She sounds like she's, you know, like a hobbit in Lord of the Rings. (laughs) (laughs) Just once I get back to my little burr, everything will be fine. It's so ridiculous. Like, like Michael Barnier is going to run into a room in the EU. Michael, all right. Michael Barnier. (laughs) Fucking hell, all right, Farage. (laughs) Mickey Barnier. (laughs) Michou, as we call him. (laughs) He's not going to be going, guys, guys, stop everything. David Davis has published an article on Conservative Home. (laughs) (laughs) That heavily quotes the Spice Girls as well. Oh, God. Heavily. 
and that's not like that's not a Venn diagram I really had in my head. But there you go. Well, the way Jerry's going at the moment, who knows? <laughs> She'll be getting to Brussels to renegotiate for ERG. I just think there are other ways of doing Brexit. And maybe if May hadn't been so worried about what the really crazy Brexiteers in her party thought, she would have seen that. So, But instead, we have Brexit by Daily Mail headlines. And it's hard to sympathise with somebody who's so gleefully marched us down 95% of this right-wing path and then is only vaguely trying to pull a little bit more central now. I mean... Poor Theresa May. Who knew having vans encouraging immigrants to go home and then falsely claiming that the Human Rights Act was allowing an illegal immigrant to stay in the country because they had a cash would somehow come back to bite her? I like the one thing, because you mentioned the Daily Mail, actually. I think that's been quite funny, the fact that obviously, you know, Paul Dacre is no longer the Daily Mail editor and it's now Georgie Gregg, who actually, you know, was a massive Remainer and so is now basically just publishing stuff. And I think there's been great trolling of, like, calling the hard Brexiteers the saboteurs and stuff. And it's like, <laughs> I see what you're doing there, Geordie. But I feel like from Theresa May's perspective, it must be quite frustrating of being like, I did all of this, all of this for you. <laughs> you for God's sake. <laughs> Am I not pretty? Is mom? I'm not pretty. <laughs> that was super creepy. <laughs> on that note, I think we should probably move on. So, last Friday, a UN poverty report found that the UK government had inflicted, and I quote, great misery on its people with, and again, I quote, punitive, mean-spirited and often callous austerity poli- policies. And that's the UN saying that, not Labour, not the Whinge and Guardian, not even me when I've had too many drinks and I found out a guy in a party with a bow tie who looks like a Tory and I probably secretly want to get off with. This is the United Nations, as in every other country in the world, telling our government that their policies are cruel and inflict great misery. So this is a big deal. So Philip Alston, who led the report, said this was not just a disgrace, but a social calamity and an economic disaster. So in an alternative world, where Tory MPs shouting at a map wasn't the lead story, this should be what we're talking about. But it's just so satisfying to hear someone objective outright say what we've been screaming about for years and years. I'd say the issue with that, and I think that a few people have said, you know, like said it at the time and were, you know, called centrist dads for pointing it out, <laughs> is that actually, because it was so strongly written and actually, you know, quite political and quite, and the language was quite colourful in that report, it then became very easy for the Tories to go, you know, but actually, you know, this is clearly busy written by some mad lefty and that's kind of that. And I think, and, and then that is exactly what happened. I think it was Ember Rudd in the chamber who, when that was brought up, effectively said, you know, there was a really, was it like heavy-handed political language or something like that. And so that kind of allowed, I think, the government to completely like swish it aside and be Mm -hmm. like, well, clearly, you know, that was this quite, yeah, like mad partisan thing. So I think that would be, for me, the one frustrating thing. In that case, I think if you've got such strong facts, there's no need to actually, you know, kind of necessarily add the rhetoric as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Rhetoric, fucking hate that word. To add the rhetoric as well. But yeah, but apart from that, yeah, no, it, it clearly is, I think, yeah, like, again, like a massively shocking report, but would have been more influential, I think, had it not, again, yeah, had it not sounded basically like a Labour press release, even if they had reason to obviously, you know, make it sound like that. So some of the facts that were 
inspiring such emotion from an international body include details like 14 million people live in poverty. So that's a fifth of the population. There are 1.5 million people destitute, meaning they can't afford the most basic essentials. And that's by political choice. Like we could fix that, but our government chooses not to. So I personally, just me, I'm just excited to see how Esther McVeigh describes that particular achievement. Now that she's possibly moving on to another job, like in her CV, will she say, I'm really good at multitasking. I was responsible for a universal credit, you know, that destroyed the lives of people living with disabilities, while also being responsible for children going to school hungry. So I guess you can say, I work well as a team, but i am also got initiative. From um international point of view how how is this normalized by that they can just go oh well they're probably exaggerating because yeah i think if you want to kind of appeal to the conservatives on this like you do need to actually yeah like just kind of like present the figures in the most sober way possible otherwise it will be attacked as kind of like nakedly political and people will just move on so i would say that that's kind of one of the issues but again i think the other thing and we talked about it last week universal credit the problem is that brexit i think has taken up all the oxygen in westminster so actually you know i think there are many mps obviously on all sides but you know even some of the tory sides i think who would that who would care about this but it's just like there's no space there is no space at the moment even so in terms of like psychologically in terms of like MPs that like in their day or in terms of legislation in terms of basically everything in terms of you know the treasury and the money that gets allocated to like x or y like I think the problem is that yeah Brexit has basically meant that everything else domestically is on hold until you know god knows when could you spread a rumor in the french government Using your uh, your context, I presume. That, yeah, I, I met one of Macron's <laughs> advisor once, and we talked for about three minutes. So I am in there. Could you get the French government maybe to start slagging off the English about how poor people starve here? So that famously works really well. I've always found that French people telling British people how to live has always been very, very effective. They really listen to us. But if that, I just think if that if English people or British people could get as excited and emotional about child poverty as they did about football, <laughs> then maybe that would be something that to capture the public imagination. You know, with this whole sort of rise of nationalism, if we could be like football chants going... 1.5 million of your people live in poverty. So for that, we're going to work on that. Uh, that's something, you know, like it was a great start-off point, but, you know, we can, we can maybe bounce that off each other for a bit. And like... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. 
Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. So, I'm intrigued by you, a comedian, asking me not to laugh at things. Well... Only bad jokes, Marie. My jokes are excellent. Mm. (laughs) But I think by doing this, we can help end gay conversion therapy. So that's where organisations, usually religious, persuade people that being gay is wrong and you can somehow be cured of it. Paul Brand did a series of reports on this last week on ITV, which you can check out online but we spoke to him about why he investigated it. The government estimated back in the summer, did a huge survey of LGBT people in Britain, one of the biggest surveys ever done of LGBT people in the world, and they found that tens of thousands of people had either been offered conversion therapy over the course of their lifetime or had gone through it. And when we started investigating it, we thought that maybe in 2018, you know, maybe those numbers were a bit lower and some of those people had gone through it a long time ago. And what we discovered is this is hugely prevalent in Britain, shockingly so. We investigated two organisations that were offering very different types of conversion therapy. But we were told on good authority that you could walk into pretty much any Pentecostal church in Britain and find some level of help with your sexuality, to change your sexuality. So I think the thing, right, around homophobia is, and I'm sure you'll be the same, and I'm sure some of our listeners will be as well, is I do live in this kind of, like, beautiful, quite young, quite diverse, of, like, liberal circles, Mm -hmm. like a bubble, you know, that's kind of, you know, where I am. Most of my friends, you know, lots of my friends are LGBT. Most of the spaces I'm in are safe spaces for that and whatever. Mm -hmm. So I think that there can be a tendency for people like us to kind of go, well, you know, it's it's not really a thing anymore, you know, like homophobia, like, you know, it's basically fine even like places like London let's say you know London's basically fine now when it's really not the case I feel like you know I have several sort of like especially like gay male friends literally in the past year that like, who have been like gay bashed and have been beaten up in the street just for literally like, holding hands with their boyfriend or kissing in the street like you know and that was that so I think it like a lot of it as well is kind of you know even for like the cushy liberal people to be like actually in lots of parts of the countries and lots of communities this is still something that's a massive problem. We're so privileged, especially straight women. We benefit so much from queer culture and it's become so sort of normalised, sort of, you know, LGBT, RuPaul's Drag Race, so much gay culture we can sort of enjoy and appropriate and feel very comfortable with. And the reality is, like, I've got lots of gay friends and um, lots of uh, lesbian friends who, again, like you said, have experienced homophobia on the street and feeling uncomfortable uh, in London and as as well as outside of London. And it is very easy to sort of lose track of that. And, and yeah, like you said, just be completely oblivious to the reality about what it's really like. That it is quite hard to connect to those stories. So again, yes, yeah, so like I'm by most of my friends. Like literally, I think, not all my groups of friends, but like I have several groups of friends where literally like some of the people are straight and it's like, oh, how quaint. <laughs> you know, that's adorable. <laughs> Didn't know you did that anymore. And so I think that, yeah, like it's, it's, it's having to kind of force yourself to say that actually for like, that we're immensely lucky and for lots of people that is just not the case at all, even though there's a lot more sort of, you know, in terms of like popular culture and internet culture and whatever, I think that, you know, 
LGBT people can sort of like find places to talk and kind of have, you know, a culture that has gone quite mainstream, but that's not necessarily translated, I think, in, you know, the country at large, actually, Mm -hmm. suddenly being completely fine with like LGBT people. I mean, this has only sort of been mainstream in the past, like, five years. There's There's still so much trauma and guilt and shame that a lot of uh, gay people still have to live with. And when they're feeling vulnerable or suffering mental health issues, uh, they're very vulnerable to people preying on those. Coming back to gay conversion therapy, like what actually happens? So again, you can see the footage on ITV's website, but we asked Paul to outline the practice. So we investigated two separate organisations because we wanted to show the breadth of conversion therapy. It's difficult to define and it goes on in many, many different forms uh, in the country. So the first organisation we investigated was a Pentecostal church where our undercover reporter went in spoke to four separate pastors who all told him that they could help with his sexuality and the one that we ended up broadcasting was a pastor who told him he was under the control of the devil and that God could fix him uh, if he went through several stages one being a prayer which is common to many churches where they will fill you with the Holy Spirit and he was put through very intense prayer for about 25 minutes where the pastor tried to put the Holy Spirit into him pushing him around the floor shouting speaking in tongues again this is a a practice that is common to many churches in in so much as you you could get prayed for in that way for all sorts of different reasons but here it was clear that the aim was to to cure him or to change his sexuality and then the second organization we investigated was complete opposite end of the spectrum very quiet very gentle but they use a series of manuals and relationship courses which you can go on and our reporter met with the leader of that organization who said that changing his sexuality wasn't their aim but that it was absolutely something that could happen if he went through their courses and we managed to get hold of some of their manuals which call for example homosexuality a neurosis they say that it can be caused by child abuse they say that it can be caused by a lack of uh, a good relationship with your mum or your dad And all of these theories have been discredited by modern psychiatry and psychology. And these practices have been deemed potentially harmful by all of the scientific bodies in the UK. Now, all the organisations Paul covered deny they were engaged in gay conversion therapy. And legally, we have to point that out. Did you know uh, in Ireland, homosexuality was only decriminalised in 1992? Fucking hell. So I know the kind of pressure religious organisations can put on legislation. But how can they possibly argue against this? There's a really interesting group of all sorts of eclectic people who believe that you shouldn't ban gay conversion therapy. For some, it's about religious freedoms. So there are certain churches where they believe uh, very sincerely that being gay is a sin. And therefore, they believe that you must be able to offer people the choice, as they would view it, to come out of homosexuality. Now, all of the professional bodies in Britain that deal with anything to do with therapy or where sexuality comes from, they've all agreed that there's no way you can change someone's sexuality. There's no evidence that you can do that. But obviously these are religions with sincerely held beliefs that God doesn't want you to be gay and therefore people should have the freedom to explore the option of coming out of being gay, which will be offensive, of course, to a lot of LGBT people, but that is what they believe. And then there are other people who call themselves ex-gay, who claim that they have been through various types of therapies and that it did stop them from being gay so there's one man called Mike Davidson who campaigns very vociferously for conversion therapy who claims that he was sleeping with men and went through a therapeutic process and now is completely straight and he's married with a wife uh, and children. In response to our reporting we have had very many questions about 
where to draw the line here, of course, because there are sensitive religious freedoms at play. But I think it's clear from the government's point of view that there is a, a line to be drawn between private belief and public harm. And I don't think what anyone's trying to do here is to legislate against someone's sincere belief that being gay is, is sinful. But what they are trying to legislate against is this false promise that you are able to in some way change your sexuality, because that's where the harm does potentially come in. And we've heard many testimonies of people who have uh, been driven to suicidal thoughts. Some people sadly have taken their own lives over this. Because to suggest that someone is able to change their sexuality heaps all kinds of stigma and shame onto them. And also this huge expectation that they then feel that some change is going to happen. And when that change doesn't happen, they start to question, does God not love me? Am I not good enough in his eyes? And then again, that creates a whole cycle of stigma and shame. And so for the government, I think they're pretty clear-minded that it's the process they want to ban, not the beliefs necessarily. It's the process of promising someone a change therapy that ultimately can potentially make them feel much worse about themselves. So obviously, banning something requires legislation. The government announced that it wants uh, a ban. They announced that in July, um, which was the impetus for us first looking at this. We, we broke the news um, back in July that the government was looking at a ban. And the reason they haven't brought it in yet, I'm told, is purely because they want to go through a consultative process. So of course, this is a sensitive issue that involves many sensitive religious freedoms. And they do need to go through the proper course of discussing with various religious bodies what they do about this. The Secretary of State told me that she will bring the ban in soon. I don't know what soon means, but I do get the sense that they want to act fairly quickly on this. We spoke to Rachel Tugart Ryan from Humanist UK, who have been campaigning to get something done. Well, there's sort of two sort of strands of the work we're doing. So one is trying to persuade the government to bring forward legislation, which specifically would ban or criminalise offering gay conversion therapies. And uh, Part of that is supporting bills that come before Parliament. And the other half of it is just really exposing the harm that is caused to individuals and families who experience gay conversion therapy. So part of that is um, working through our LGBT humanist network to put forward stories into the media, put forward blogs and various things, sort of just trying to uh, get journalists interested, trying to expose what is really going on and in what settings it's going on. So those are the two sort of big things that we've been doing. You know, one of the sort of spotlight pieces we did a couple of years ago was through our network called Faith Schoolers Anonymous, which is a kind of whistleblowing platform we have about people who go through very extreme religious education. And the fact that many of the um, people in that kind of network have experienced what they would call sort of gay exorcisms. When I think of this topic, I always associate it with sort of the extreme right in the US. I didn't realise that it was available in the UK. How widespread is it? I mean, it is very difficult to get a kind of grasp on how many people have undergone conversion therapy because, you know, it's just something that people are not you know, particularly willing to speak openly about. But if we go back to... The um, government action plan that was um, sort of uh, the government conducted as part of that, the LGB action plan, they conducted a survey um, of LGBT participants, which suggested that 2% of respondents, so 2% of LGBT people, uh, had gone through some kind of conversion therapy and that a further 5% had been offered by a third party either in a medical setting, in a religious setting, in a family setting, 
to have had some sort of conversion therapy. And so as far as the NHS is concerned, they have a memorandum of understanding that the NHS should not offer or advertise or in any way support conversion therapies. But nonetheless, like Stonewall in 2015 did a survey which said that 10% of health and social workers had witnessed a colleague offering conversion therapies. And that figure rose to 22% of health and social workers in London. So, I mean, that's probably the best measure of, you know, to what extent it exists in the UK. But we're looking, you know, at potentially 10% of healthcare workers thinking that this is something that they can offer people who have a problem with their sexuality or are uncomfortable with their sexuality. And 5% of, of LGBT people in any survey have been offered such therapy at some stage. And is there an, an age range that is especially vulnerable to it? Is it young people that get targeted with this or is it any age? I think it generally is children and teenagers who are developing their sort of sexual identity early on are obviously more vulnerable to family pressure, to various you know influences within their community, which should make them more vulnerable to conversion therapy. But I bet there's no evidence in this survey or various on some of that's been sort of looked in at depth at the uh, social demographics and age ranges. What do you think people can do actually to kind of support you know like the, the ban of gay conversion therapy? I think there's always uh, well there's about two things I think people can practically do one of which is persuade legislators that change needs to happen that we need to bring in an effective ban through legislation which says it is not you know it isn't a criminal offense to offer conversion therapies either within the NHS it's only at the moment a member understanding that these therapies can't be offered it's not that so it's only good practice there's no actual criminal ban and certainly where most of this conversion therapy is happening is in closed religious communities which are very isolated from outside scrutiny. So I think one thing you need to, if you are interested in you know, helping people to achieve this ban is to write to your MP to speak to your local decision makers and say there is a bill in Parliament that is going to introduce a ban. I want you to know, write to your MP and say please vote in favour of this. I think the second thing you can do is about exposing these practices where you come across them. So if you're in a community where, you know, you're aware that conversion therapy is offered to young people who are struggling with their sexual identity, it is really to blow the whistle um, on these practices and to refer um, vulnerable teenagers or young people to social services if you think they're in danger. I mean, in many cases, these conversion therapies are violent. They can be mentally damaging. They can be damaging to that person's development and self-esteem. And it is really about um, finding those areas where you think a child might be vulnerable or a young person might be vulnerable and um, putting the authorities that are there making sure the authorities that are there to protect them are aware of what is going on. Brilliant. Thanks so much. Oh, thanks a lot. Uh, no worries. Thank you. So explain to me exactly how not laughing at bad jokes will help end this. Gay conversion therapy relies on the belief that being gay is somehow shameful or wrong. Now, while the government consults and debates about how exactly you can ban this, we can all help create a culture where homophobia like this doesn't spread. So, for example, by not laughing at ironic homophobic jokes, you'll stop people making them. 
And it's all well and good to think that because none of you and your mates are homophobic, that homophobia is funny. Because people are still getting beaten up for being gay. Even Gareth Thomas, the former Wales rugby player, a national hero, got assaulted in Cardiff recently. And as we've heard, people are pressured into cruel treatments to cure them. So let's lay off the joke, shall we? And if you hear one, maybe ask the joker to very slowly explain it to you. Oh my God, I actually really love doing that if someone makes a kind of homophobic sex joke, whatever, just going like, but I don't really get it. So why is it funny? Can you can you go through? And then Because eventually they're just forced to admit that, you know, the punchline is really either gay people are bad or women are bad or whatever. But, um, but anyway, so actually, you know, on, on that sort of note, I guess. So Stonewall has an excellent five-step plan for being an LGBT ally. And I think not laughing comes at a point three, so be visible and challenge. But look up the whole list. It's a good place to start. That's it for us this week. Please come and say hello on Twitter. Changing Polypod and Facebook, Changing Paul. And also look at our new website, changingpolitics.org. Thanks for listening. Bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.